I see it as uh, a year of uh, racial dilemma for a lot of folks, right? How will history record the years 20 and 21? Before March of last year, we thought we'd seen it all. But has anything really changed? Even this past year has given us hindsight that the uneasy times we are living in are similar to generations past, still leaving us with more questions than answers to the much-needed change for the generations to come. The hate-filled killings of unarmed black people in the U.S. sparked international outrage from every race under the sun, reaching the far corners of the world. Here in Canada, 2020 saw Indigenous people facing inexplicable pain when police answered wellness checks by families who called for their loved ones in distress but met with death. Still, if anything is underreported in all of this outrage, pain and anxiety, it's the peace-seeking goodness and kindness in people. My family is a peaceful family. My family is God-fearing. Let's do this another way. Today on Context, the realities of anti-Indigenous and anti-Black racism. Colton Bushy's mother, Debbie Baptiste, speaks out five years after the death of her beloved 22-year-old son. An RCMP watchdog report just released concluded police racially discriminated against her. But with her lawyer, Eleanor Sunchild, by her side, Debbie's faith is still fierce. Actually, Debbie carries a Bible around with her everywhere. She goes, do you have it with you right now? Yep. And Colton's picture. <laughs> and now that cell phones and surveillance cameras are helping to record the times we're living in, in the case of George Floyd, people are rising up against anti-black racism. When the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin ends, will it be the inflection point for history to record change and healing? Here's Maggie John with Bishop Harding Smith, who knew George Floyd and has been following this historic trial. All eyes are on Minneapolis, Minnesota, as former police officer Derek Chauvin stands trial for the murder of George Floyd. This case rocked the world, encouraging millions to head to the streets in protest last summer as we all watch Floyd's slow death under Chauvin's knee. Bishop Harding Smith knew George Floyd and joins us now. Bishop, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. What's the mood like right now in Minneapolis, Minnesota? Right now, people are anxious. Um, people are crying out for justice. Um, people are angry. And um, you, you see, the thing is, we have been here before. Yeah. Too many times where there is a terrible incident and we hear all the right things coming from the police. We hear promises that um, uh, they will do the right things. They will ring these officers in. And then as the attention on the story of the case of the murder fades, so do their promises. And, um, and, and, and people are left to fend for themselves. So, we have been down this road before here in Minneapolis with a lot of other murders. And so right now, people do not trust the system. They do not trust the police. Um, they want to see justice. And that was going to be my next question. This has not been the first case, probably will not be the last in uh, Minnesota and in Minneapolis. And as you talk about wanting justice then, what does justice look like? Well... Right now, there has been, um, I will say this, there has been a, a pandemic here in Minnesota. 
um, even before the COVID-19 and this pandemic is called racism. Um, black people, people of color have been targeted. Um, there has been mass incarceration of black people. Um, it's, 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 it's so much that we as a people have gone through. And um, time and time again, um, after a police shooting, you will hear the mayor, you will hear the chief, but this has been the culture. This has been the culture time and time again of this police department. We had in 2007, we have five black officers sued the Minneapolis Police Department because they have seen systemic racism within this department. And this is something that have gone on time and time again without transparency, accountability, and trust. So right now, uh, uh, um, it was good. I just want to say this. It was good to, to see the chief of police out there speaking, speaking out. But the problem is, you ask yourself, what if there were not a video of this incident? You know, uh, um, uh, what if the world didn't rise up to speak up? You know, this police department, law enforcement, um, they, they have a good way of surviving. And I believe they are all, they, are, they have come together to say, this is what we need to do to survive. We need to step up now. But I just want to say this, George Floyd would still be alive today if this police department had accountability, had trust, and had reined in these rogue officers that have gone off the rails. But too many of times we see the department step up and back these officers that have killed our children, that have hurt us, and that have gone rogue. And there is nothing, nothing has been done about it. So too many of times we have families, Maggie, that have gone to the Justice Department, you know, hoping and seeking justice, only to be told that it was a justified shooting. So. We, we had a crossroad right now in Minneapolis. Yeah. You had an event with the Floyd family. You invited them as well as uh, Mr. Crump as well uh, to the event. How are they feeling and, and what are they, what was the concept, what was the feeling like at that event as you memorialize George Floyd and look and see what has happened in our world globally because of this man's death? You know, I have been in touch with this family um, from the time uh, George was murdered. They know that we're praying for them. The family knows that we're standing with them. But the family, family wants justice. The family wants to know that uh, George's life um, was not taken in vain. Uh, they want the officers, all of them, not just uh, uh, shoving, all of them, the ones that held the legs, the ones that stood guard, all of them that participated in this murder to be held accountable. It's not about the settlement from the city. It's not about nothing else. It's time now that Minneapolis Police Department be held accountable. And it starts from the top from the very top. The family is hurting. The family is hurting right now because 
what we are hearing, okay, is very traumatizing. You know, they have to relive this again and again, and they have to listen to the defense trying to tarnish the name of this good man. Mm. It's hard. It's hard to sit there and watch after seeing how this man stood on the neck of George. And you can only do that if you know that you have a department that has your back. You can only do that in broad daylight only if you feel that you are privileged. People are videotaping you and you're not afraid of any consequences. It because Minneapolis Police Department have taken care of their own time and time again. And so that's why Chauvin stood on his neck because he was not afraid of any consequence coming from this department. Well, we are also praying for justice to be served as well. Thank you so much, Bishop Harding-Smith, for your time today. Brenda Lucky, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do rather than just saying, we agree with what's been found? Big deal. A clip there from Chief Bobby Cameron of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations after the release of a report from the Civilian and Review Complaints Commission. Chief Cameron asking RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky if there's more she can do. The scathing report makes 17 recommendations to address missteps made in the investigation of Colton Bushy's death, which included claims that the family faced racial discrimination by the RCMP. <coughs> Joining me now is Colton Bushy's mother, Debbie Baptiste, and her lawyer, Eleanor Sunchild. Thank you both for joining me today. Debbie, I want to start with you. How do you feel about this investigation and the 17 recommendations to the RCMP that have come out from this report? Discouraged. Hmm. I feel like I don't have trust yeah. in the RCMP. And if anything, my anger turned into fear that they could, lie, they could lie, lie after lie, and say they did no wrongdoing. They bulged up a crime scene, and it's okay. Feel really discouraged. Eleanor, the, the way the RCMP treated Debbie and the family in the wake of Colton's death was deplorable telling Debbie to get it together when she was told of her son's death and questioned if she had been drinking. Have you heard personally from the RCMP? Has the family heard from the RCMP maybe an apology? No, there's been no apology. No apology from the commissioner, Brenda Lucky. No apology from the officers who were involved. There were seven of them at the scene that night. Uh, and, and Debbie was just not discriminated against by that action of smelling her breath there. Uh, we've always said that the whole investigation right from the moment he was killed was full of discrimination from what Debbie, Debbie just mentioned about uh, not securing the crime scene uh, and letting evidence wash away from um, issuing a press release that didn't state the full story from treating the indigenous witnesses who were uh, at the scene like they were criminals themselves there. And, and uh, Chief Bobby Cameron spoke about that as well at the press conference, how the indigenous witnesses were questioned over and over at the trial about how much they had been drinking. You know, this the whole issue played on stereotypes 
against Colton, against his family, that Debbie was a drunk, that Colton was a drunken thieving Indian, that he was a gang member. You know, we've seen all these stereotypes and, and they're all untrue. And that's the issue with this whole case. It's just not the fact that Debbie was discriminated on the night that Colton was killed. It's that she was discriminated throughout the whole case. Debbie, you talk about feeling hurt and, you know, describing um, just what has happened. Do you think that there is hope in the reconciliation of the relationship between the RCMP and Indigenous people in this land, in this country? There's hope. But until then, we still need to be heard. We need our voices to be heard. We need answers to everything that they covered up. Why did you cover up? Why do you continue to lie? Lie after lie. We need to fix this. They need to fix this. They need to tell us why that they covered up the evidence. What were they covering up? And then they continue to sweep us under the carpet, hoping we go away. But while we continue to fight, I got more answers. Um, I got more questions about that report that need to be answered. It's all black and white. We can all see it now. What are some of those questions that you have, Debbie, that you'd like answered when it comes to that report and the 17 recommendations? The whole thing needs to be questioned. Why was, uh, why did the Stanleys get to go sit at their breakfast table and have coffee while my son laid out there when there was a nurse at the table? Why did uh, Lisa Stanley and Sheldon get to ride to the police, police um, office there to be questioned? A lot of things were covered up. A lot of questions need to be answered and we want those answers. Rightfully so. You need those answers. Eleanor, you say justice for this family starts with seeing Colton as a human being. Explain that for me. Well, right from the start, he was not treated as such. He was treated as a stereotype. Colton has been seen as a, a thief, as, as a drunk, um, as, as a stereotype, basically. And so... And that, that's also how Debbie's been treated as well. Colton was somebody's son. And I'll say this again publicly, Colton had no criminal record, no criminal record. He was sleeping in the back of that SUV when he presumably got in the front to drive away and was shot in the back of the head. Those are the facts. So many people don't want to see that those are the facts, that he was a good kid. That, that he was uh, out with his friends when he got fatally, fatally shot. And that's how he has to be looked at as a human being. All lives matter. And the thing that we continue to fight for is justice matters. Thank you so much, Debbie Baptiste and Eleanor Sunchild for joining us today.
Professor Karen Lawford is here to weigh in on these Indigenous inequities in Canada. Thank you so much, Professor Lawford, for joining us again. Thank you. It feels like there has been more attention on issues of inequity toward Indigenous peoples than there has been in the past, especially in the media. Is this true and why? I think it's true. I think there's more attention because the pandemic has laid bare the glaring inequities between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. The, the heated relationship between First Nations and the RCMP is also historical, and we're, we're seeing that again. We saw Commissioner Brenda Lucky deny systemic racism, and then the report revealing the, um, the issues of racism as well. What needs to change when it comes to the way the organization reacts, and I'm talking about the RCMP, reacts to these systemic issues? I think it's going to be impossible to make any changes of any systemic value um, to not just Indigenous peoples, but to all peoples who reside in this country, if there's not even an admission, an acknowledgement of the systemic racism that the RCMP uphold. I'm very concerned about the unwillingness of the head of the RCMP or spokesman for the RCMP to actually admit that there's such a thing as systemic racism. And we look at the relationship between the RCMP and First Nations because that's, how the, that's why the RCMP was created, as a, a policing system for this group of people. So there, there is so much tension and so much history there that, you know, I, I've talked to so many people, including yourself, that says both sides need to come to the table. What does that look like? I think it's so much easier to say that both sides come to the table, but there's a substantial power imbalance mm. between the RCMP and Indigenous people, First Nations particularly. So I think that there needs to be some internal work done with the RCMP. They need to come to terms with the significant amounts of harms that they've done to First Nations and all Indigenous peoples. All right, let's pivot to healthcare which is another area in our country where inequality is highlighted. A recent report in BC revealed that over a thousand complaints made by Indigenous patients on how they were treated. Why are there so many, so many times often, um, you know, the singled out of Indigenous people when it comes to getting quality health care in our country? Well, the health care systems in, in this country are all underpinned by a Euro- Canadian biomedical model that's founded and grounded in white supremacy and eugenics. I don't understand how we could expect anything else. And I think that we're seeing a lot more complaints by Indigenous peoples because there's the capacity, um, like the technology to make complaints. I really don't think that it's any different than the way it was yesterday. And it's not going to be any different today if the healthcare systems and those people within it are not willing to come to terms with the white supremacy that exists within the biomedical model that is practiced within this country, and not just practiced, but also taught. What does that mean, the white supremacy of the healthcare system? Kind of delve into that a little bit more. What does that look like for Indigenous people and just people of color when you say that? It means that we have um, healthcare leaders who say there's no such thing as structural racism or systemic racism. They don't see anything but a generic body that is able to be treated the same regardless of their experiences within a world, a Western world that relies on 
the marginalizations of people for its economic benefits. So the healthcare that you would receive is different than the healthcare I would receive simply because I'm white passing and you're a black woman. I think that we might be coming to a time where people are gonna start recording every interest, every interaction they have with a healthcare provider because people don't believe that such racism can exist unless it's recorded. And that's really frightening to me that we're not believing people when the harms are being done. And this is what I think of when I think of race, systemic racism. It is across all professions. It's not just physicians. It's not just nurses. It's also midwives, it's orderlies, it's everyone that works in that system upholds a certain hierarchy of being. And of course, the being that's the best, the best human being is the white man. Mm. Wow. Well, what a way to start to end that discussion. We are out of time already, but you're right. I mean, there's a lot of advocacy work that needs to happen in order for both of us to be able to get clear representation in healthcare and so many other areas of our society. Thank you again, always, for a rich conversation, Professor Karen Lawford. Like to watch more Context Beyond the Headlines? Catch up on any of our shows online. On YouTube, search Context Beyond the Headlines for the most up-to-date episodes and extended content. Listen on the go with Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Check out our reporters' and producers' stories at our website, context.show. Follow us on Instagram at Context Beyond the Headlines and Twitter at Context TV. There are so many ways to put more context into your life. Drew Hart is a prolific writer whose books challenge the church in the way it views racism. Trouble I've Seen and Who Will Be a Witness are enlightening on so many levels when it comes to the discussion of anti-black racism. Thank you, Professor Hart, for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Some have called 2020 a year of global racial reckoning. How do you see the past year? It, well, I, I, I see it as uh, a year of uh, racial dilemma for a lot of folks, right? And I would say that uh, for some folks, it's been a racial reckoning, but I'd say for other folks, it's been uh, racial hardening. And I would say for other folks, it's been a racial awakening, but it's kind of undetermined yet where that's going to go, right? That there's, for some folks, um, they're reading books, they're thinking about race, um, but they could go back to sleep on this issue, but they could also go deeper in, right? They maybe been reading popular books on the New York Times, um, but there's not necessarily any commitment in action yet. And so I think there's a, it's been a lot of different things for a lot of different people this year, but the, the reality is everyone in some way had to respond. So even if it's hardening one's heart, they had to respond to the moment. It wasn't something that you could just pretend was not happening. Yeah, you couldn't ignore the conversation that was happening globally. You say the church needs to wake up calling out colorblind ideology. How does the church get past that when it when a lot of it a lot of people get struck on theories, Black Lives Matter and you know, quoting Galatians 328 and yet not addressing the real issues of inequality? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, we've got to begin to be really attentive to people's actual lived experiences and not just get stuck inside the, inside the narratives that we've been told. And so I think that uh, for many of us, um, there's 
there's always the Christian practice of receiving the sacred stories of others and allowing them to change you. And in particular, as followers of Jesus, it should be receiving the stories of those who've been most marginalized, right? The least, the last and lost in society, those who've been left behind um, and allowing their stories of oppression and discrimination and the obstacles that have been created um, to prevent access into thriving um, that, that need to be taken very seriously. And so I think until we deal with those systemic realities, um, pretending that we live in a post-racial society is just not gonna get us anywhere. It's just gonna continue to repeat the same cycles of issues that we've dealt with for centuries. There's also been a lot of silence among prominent church leaders when it comes to anti-racism. You say the church must join with racially oppressed communities. What does that look like, especially for the white church? Yeah, um, that we've got to move beyond just feeling bad or having guilt or, I don't know, having book studies to actually joining in. Um, in fact, I mean, some of the idea of reconciliation is not just about being buddy-buddy and having sentimental kind of responses and relationships, um, but what does it mean to exchange places with, right? To enter in fully and to make someone else's sufferings your own sufferings. And then in solidarity and mutuality in Christ to move forward and struggle for a new world, for God's dream for us. Um, and so on the ground, what would it actually mean for, uh, communities, churches to actually struggle doing grassroots work, struggling movement work, organizing, right? Um, as though the concerns and the things that are impacting others are impacting themselves because we are actually family together. Mm. On that point, what do you say to those who say the church has no role when it comes to social justice? How do you see Jesus combat social injustice? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that Jesus only concerned himself with spiritual things is an argument that goes back to slavery. I mean, it's not really a position that um, you'd want to take if you understood how these ideas developed. Um, we're, you're on the wrong side of issues, right? When you begin to take that issue. But it's very clear for Jesus. I mean, he, Luke 4, 18 and 19, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what is in the rest of the gospel of Luke, what does he do? Just that, right? He's actually prioritizing the last are first and the first are last in his ministry. It's the vulnerable women. It's the Samaritan right? It's those who have been stigmatized in their society, those who are poor and oppressed that are finding healing and deliverance because of the kingdom reign and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so in that same kind of way, we ought to then be followers of Jesus, take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow him. And so we've got to engage in the same kind of holistic ministry that cares for the whole person. And that also Jesus confronted the establishment and spoke truth to power. And when we need to, we have to be uh, willing to do that and accept the consequences like Jesus did. Are you hopeful that the church can lead in the reform when it comes to anti-racism? Am I hopeful? That's a tough question, right? Um, yes and no. Um, no, in the grand scheme of church history, it's very bleak. The church has mangled its witness. It has diseased and vandalized the name of Jesus in the public square. And I take that to heart and I don't think we can take that lightly. On the other hand, uh, you know, I do find hope in the sense of the embodied hope of folks who are actually living out the Jesus story for their neighbors, right? That that uh, brings me hope when I actually see people um, actually taking the gospel serious, seriously enough that they're living it. 
um, and they're making the reign of God manifest for others who are watching in the world. Um, that's encouraging, it's life-giving, and it's participating in God's deliverance in the world. And so there's a lot of hope for, for me when that gets in flesh, but it's not just words, but also deeds that are being lived out uh, before a watching world. Oh, so good. I think I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much, Professor Drew Hart, for your time today. Hi, I'm Calvin Mazik, Director of Context. Each week, our team tackles news headlines that affect us all. Our producers go beyond those headlines where we find God in action. But we could not produce this program without you, our viewers and our donors. If you'd like to find out how you can support the show, visit us at crossroads.ca forward slash context. We'll see you next week and every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. right here on Yes TV.